This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. So, Sarjo Hal, good morning to you. <laughs> Kia ora, Catherine. Been a while? It has been a wee while. It's lovely to have you back with us. I'm just going to try to find out what I'm supposed to do to introduce you. Here it goes here. Why do some children have imaginary friends? Is it something parents should be worried about? And what is the role these friends fulfil? It's a pleasure to welcome psychologist Sarah Johal back to Nine to Noon. Kia ora and welcome. Good so, to see you. how common is it to have an imaginary friend when you are a child? It's actually remarkably common. Um, we think that there's no consensus on why they appear, but they seem to start to appear when imaginary play starts to appear. So around about two and a half, three years old tends to be peak years up until about seven years old, tend to linger till they're about nine years old, but not uncommon for them to persist a bit longer than that too. Is it a specific friend typically and quite an imagined and fully rounded character? It can be a variety of things. I was reading about one um, child who had uh, imaginary friends that turned out to be a herd of cows, little tiny cows, and the father only found out about it when he accidentally sat on one. Uh, And then he started to discover this whole world that this child had created um, and all these little baby small animals that occupied it. So, yeah, it can take all sorts of different shapes and forms, and often we don't know about it until the child is ready to to start telling us about it. And we think maybe about 25 to 45% of children have them at some point. But amazingly, they can forget them really, really quickly. So within two years of the imaginary child not being talked about anymore, the child... Can't even remember they had it. And and it's interesting because the family then becomes the repository of the stories of the imaginary friend or animal or whatever the companion was. I'm curious that you forget it because um, we know many childhood memories are very hard to access but some things are also very, very hardwired and I would have thought the imaginary friend like the teddy made the distance. But that almost suggests that it serves a purpose for a time. And then no matter how deep the love, it's bye-bye. Yeah. Um, And there's also other things around, you know, sometimes children stop talking about them because there's a little bit of a stigma. They Mm. feel a little bit kind of babyish. That's something I want to leave behind. So, yeah, there's maybe a little bit of that too. But, yeah, it's uh, certainly serving a purpose, partly because it's fun to to have this. But also, you know, if you're a a toddler and you've got um, some, you know, you're the youngest one and you want to, exert a little bit of a control over what's going on in your situation then perhaps you've got an imaginary friend who you might be bossing around a little bit and you know they become the younger sibling so there are different functions that um, an imaginary friend might serve for children. We've got similar things with like blankies you know I can't go anywhere without my blankie or my favourite teddy or, mm. or, or this that are just um, a reassurance thing. The thing with the imaginary friend is that as you say it's more elaborate in its role um, Can you tell us a bit more about the roles it's presumed it serves? Mm. Well, there's a few different perspectives we can take on this. So the first one might be something called self-determination theory, which basically says we need three things in order to help us to fulfil our psychological needs. Those three things are, the first one is autonomy. So the idea that we can feel in control of our behaviours and goals. So being able to take um, an action that results in something. Um, and that helps people to feel self-determined. 
The second one would be something like competence. So you need mastery of tasks and um, learning different skills. So often um, you'll find children talking to their imaginary friends, teaching them something or helping them to fulfill a task or learn how to do something. And then the third one is this, as you say, this kind of like connectedness, this relatedness, and it may be comforting, but they want that sense of belonging and attachment to other people. So maybe they're, you know, taking a bit of a leadership role, you know, demonstrating their competence, showing that they can do something, but also maybe they're helping them in social situations as well. Or maybe the imaginary friend is helping the, the child with some kind of social situation too. So that's one perspective. Another one is if we think about almost like storytelling and taking authorship of your life. You know, I'm the one who gets to tell the story here about this imaginary friend and their relationship to me. And so this is like almost like a, a really early example of children saying, actually, there are lots and lots of people who are telling me who I am. I'm going to start creating a little bit of a story about who I am in relation to other people where I have more control over the story. And I think that's a really interesting, unexplored perspective around that sort of agency and control over who gets to tell their story and who gets to create that. Who doesn't want good friends too? And friendship's complicated when you're a toddler. As you say, you can construct, and children do this in their fantasy worlds anyway. We know they construct very elaborate worlds. You can construct what it is that makes you feel good or that gives you something, and so you do. And if you can construct an imaginary friend that makes you good and, is, as, as we say, is, makes you feel good and is serving a purpose, you shall. They are, their, their creativity is exploding in that preschool age, right? Mm. I often think of um, Nathan Wallace saying, you know, when they're inventing stories about what the stars are in the sky, and it's this great big complex kind of um, plot that runs through mm. it. Don't stand there and correct them and say, no, this is this, this is the next thing. Part of their developing and beginning to understand their world is to imagine and create mm. what's what. This fits with the same sort of stage of development, does it not? It, it does, and, and, and I think you make a, an important point there is that who's, again, who's in charge mm. of the story? And so taking a stance of descriptive commentary where you're kind of repeating and commenting upon what the child is telling you about their imaginary friend and their imaginary world rather than interrogating too carefully because often when you look at something too carefully the child can get defensive or it starts to fall apart you know it doesn't feel that cohesive and they're still in the process of making that but I think it's another interesting thing there about what you talked about in terms of the time and the space that's available to construct these worlds and imaginary friends there was a study done a little while ago where they asked nursery teachers about their perceptions um, of what it looked like um, you know, in terms of imaginary friends that they were coming across with the children that they were looking at. And they felt that actually um, they believed that children are having fewer imaginary friends. And 63% of those nursery teachers thought it was due to screen time. Oh, here we go. <laughs> and because it fills in that space where children are actually able to create and be bored. So rather than kind of optimising the time that they have available when you have free Leave space. Leave them time to be bored and, and let them go ahead and create. And see imagine. what emerges. Yeah. 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 Do parents ever worry about it? Do they think, you know, they've got some kind of diagnosable condition that they need to worry about? Yeah, absolutely. And if so, what can you say to them? Yeah, I mean, for a long time people thought that, you know, having an imaginary friend was harmful or evil or some kind of sign of social deficit or even possession or mental illness, all kinds of different things. 
More interestingly, recently, parents have maybe thought that perhaps the child was lonely and perhaps they were longing for a sibling and they'd created this kind of you know, person that um, would help them with their loneliness. But actually, if you look at children who are only children or firstborn children, they tend to have them more. But actually, when you look over the span of a childhood, there's no difference between those who are only, sibling, only children and have siblings too. So I wouldn't necessarily signal it as that. Yes, parents can possibly worry that you know it may be a sign of something more serious, but there's, there's little evidence to show that. There may be occasions. It's more likely that it might signal, if it's persisting for a long time, that... Um, there may be a bit of a deficit that that child's struggling yeah. with in terms of, well, how do I make relationships with real friendships? That's what I wanted to say. What What is the kind of that um, segue? It's, it's possibly not even a segue, but what's the sort of transition from... Um, having your imaginary friend who you spend, spend time with and then finding perhaps that it's not necessary anymore, it's not fulfilling anything anymore. What does that transition look like? You mentioned it can happen at different ages. Yeah. It depends upon what's going on in the child's life. You know, often um, an imaginary friend could take the, f- the form of a, a missed parent or an idealised parent. It's something that's missing in their caring that they are longing for. Or it can be that uh, they're being bullied uh, at school uh, and so they're trying to take control over a relationship um, or they may be passing on some of that behaviour and acting that out with the imaginary friend. So... It can take various shapes or forms and it starts to give you a little bit of a clue as to perhaps what's going on in that internal world of the child. But at the same time, it's also um, a fun kind of outlet. So you don't want to problematise it too much, but it can also start to become a nuisance. So when the child sometimes starts to use the imaginary friend as an excuse for behaviour that they shouldn't actually be doing. Dolly made me do it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We can hear that. So, yeah, we, we don't want to um, bend over backwards such that the child is using this as a way of really taking control over a family situation. You know, it's OK if they want to sit at the table and they can, you know, share and partake of a meal. But when you're creating a special meal just for the imaginary child, it's perhaps a little bit of a signal that they've got a little bit too much control. Or if it starts to take up some of that time, as you say, that needs to be used for other things um, because it's being used almost as a um, procrastination kind of... It's, it's more pleasurable than doing your homework, yeah. right? Yeah, so I guess one of the rules that it's you know, good to be thinking about is, you know, it doesn't kind of matter who causes it, whether it was you or your imaginary friend, you're the real person who's going to take the consequences for the ima- what the imaginary friend has done. Okay, there's some really good questions here that have touched on some of what you said earlier. My son has started acting out his less than desirable behaviour via his stuffed moose. Is there a way we can teach him to take responsibility for these actions? I'm not sure what the less than desirable behaviour is, but what would you say? Yeah, um, Yeah, I think it's about the consequences that follow from the action that the imaginary friend has done. You know, Yes, the imaginary friend may have done it, but you're the person who's around who's going to be taking the consequences of that. Having said that, exploring a little bit more around, OK, so what's going on with your imaginary friend and why is this going on with the, with the moose? And just taking a gentle kind of exploratory, what's the story here? What's the bigger picture that the child is creating that is showing itself? 
with so this behaviour. So can you ask some questions, perhaps? Yeah. And this is interesting. Do you acknowledge, because I can imagine Mary, many parents just ignore the imaginary friend and all this stuff that's going on over there. Others might ask questions. Which approach? Yeah. I guess it's the descriptive commentary again. It's commenting on, oh, I'm noticing this. I wonder what um, Johnny or... Gertrude might be thinking about um, this little situation or have I sat on them by mistake or where are they sitting now? You know, it's it's okay to ask those sorts of gentle questions, but often the child will tell you uh, when it's important for you to know. So it's a tricky balancing act around interrogating too, too closely and trying to understand what's going on with that so child. So on the question of the stuffed moose, should you be talking to them about, as you would if it were another child... Why is this happening? And it's, you know, perhaps saying, how do you think your stuff most feels about this? Like, you know, what is an actual thing this parent can do? Yeah. So it might be a little bit of interrogation around feelings. So you're seeing the action. So you're trying to figure out what's the motivation. So I wonder what they're feeling right now, such that, you know, you've maybe the imaginary friend has hit the moose. So what's the moose feeling right now? And why did they hit the moose? I'm just, I don't, I don't know what's going on. So what are the emotions behind that? And then why are those emotions occurring? And just tracking back a little bit, just to fill in the picture. Now, this comes from a trauma-sensitive claims counsellor, which is very interesting. Um, and this is, it describes this person's interest. Does having an imaginary friend predispose or exacerbate the chance of disassociation in adult life? Yeah. It's hard to know. There have been cases where uh, having an imaginary friend in adult life can be a signal of that. But dissociative disorder and multiple personality is an extremely rare case anyway. So I think that would have to be thought about really, really carefully and depends on a case-by-case basis. But, yeah, there is a small association, uh, but it is really rare. There's lots more imaginary friends perhaps than um, what this particular purpose might be, which is an experience of extreme trauma. Absolutely. And, you know, authors have talked about, you know, Agatha Christie talked about how she had an imaginary friend quite into uh, late adulthood. And she thought about that while she was writing. E.M. Forster as well talked about them almost like creating their own lives and taking the writing into a completely different direction. So it's interesting that you know, adults do describe this, but they have to feel quite safe in order to yes. be able to talk about that. Well, it's interesting you say that because I knew this one would come through. What does an imaginary friend mean in adult life? Because there will be adults who continue with um, a, an imaginary friend, probably many more than we'll ever know because, as you say, uh, you know how to hide your stuff by the time you're an adult. What would be your answer to that? What does it mean in adult life? Yeah, so the quality of that kind of relationship that you have with an imaginary friend is different to something like um, if you were thinking about, you know, is this a hallucination or is this something like schizophrenia, then um, that would take a careful teasing apart. But... I wouldn't want people to walk away thinking that just because they continue with their adult imaginary kind of like relationships that it's necessarily something to be extremely worried about because I think actually it's not common but it's also not uncommon either. Um, As I said it tends to kind of tail off when children are about nine or ten years old but Often it can continue into teenage years and then into adulthood too. It's providing something or it's something familiar or comforting um, that that you just haven't dropped along the way somewhere. Yeah, And it may come up in certain particular transition points in their lives. So maybe that they come back to or it reappears again when they're going through a particular difficult 
time through all those three different things that I talked about, that kind of like sense of autonomy, the sense of connection, but also that sense of competence so as well. So something that worked in childhood has been brought back into, into action. Um, I think we sort of touched on this, but I, we didn't really answer it. Is there a difference between imaginary friend and a special doll or stuffed animal that is everything to the child? Um, I guess I guess it's real, it's tangible, but it may have a character, um, which is hard for you to see as an adult, um, but is very special and can be described in terms of competence and thinking about storytelling for that child as well. So it's a little bit diff- different, um, but it's related, I think, in that it has its own character and it has its own life and possible world as well. And it has its own utility to the child. Yeah, it serves a function in terms of, you know, that's something, I have a relationship, it's with me all the time, it sits next to me uh, at the dinner table, it comes to bed with me, uh, and then suddenly it gets forgotten. Yeah. Um, they get left behind and then something else maybe takes its place or the child feels secure and competent enough that they they almost have what we call an internal representation of it. So they don't need the physical manifestation of the doll or the toy, but it's enough for them just to think about it. And that is comforting and serves a function in itself. Is there a point, I'm not sure if we touched on this, where you said it becomes problematic if it takes up too much time? Um and if it's being used to avoid the dullness of real life, would that be the? And if that's the case, and if you're thinking, come on, this is actually, I need you to do your homework, not be out with, you know, Barry or whatever. Yes. <laughs> How do you handle that as a yeah. parent? I think you, as you would do limits with a real life yeah. uh, relationship. So you know, yeah, you can go and play with blah 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 once you've done your chores. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so you you put limits around. You don't let them take special liberties because of that. And does it, has there any case where it actually impedes the development of friendship because the imaginary friend is just so much easier? In cases, yes. So if they were persisting with that behaviour at the expense of real life relationships, then yes. But the good news is that actually having imaginary friends, and we don't know whether it's chicken and egg here. Uh, it seems to be that those children are better at things like perspective taking and social relationships. So we don't know whether they have imaginary friends because they're good at that already or whether that develops as a result of having imaginary friends. Well, whether the imaginary friend actually exists and talks back. (laughs) Yeah, that's when I'd start to get a little bit worried. (laughs) Thank you, Saab. It's always a pleasure. Saab Johal uh, is um, our parenting commentator today. He is... Uh, a, a psychologist, as we said. Thanks, Sab.